one of the best things about live streaming is all your mess ups go to the whole world, so that's great, that's good, that's good. <laughs> Will you all join with me in reading Matthew 13, 44 through 50? The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish. When it was full, men drew to shore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Brandon. Well, hello, I am Ransom Kent, I'm the pastor here, and uh, before we jump into the sermon, allow me to pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you for preserving for us the teachings of God the Son and the flesh, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who enables us to be enlightened, illuminated as to what Jesus means and what he calls us to do. I pray for those here that are members of your church, that they would feel and remember and know what the gospel is, and it would be life-changing. I pray, Lord, for those who are outsiders, that they would hear and know and see what the gospel is, and it would also be life-changing. I pray above all these things that the words I use today would be glorifying to your name. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, one of the things I like about this passage is that we get to see Jesus uh, in action as a, an excellent teacher. Jesus is an excellent teacher. And so if you look here, he is using parables. Matthew 13 uh, is a series of parables. We're in the middle of them here. And uh, what is a parable? A parable is when Jesus would use an everyday circumstance, uh, and he would something that was known to the people he was speaking to, to explain lofty, eternal truths. So he would take this lofty, big concept and bring it down to, to the level of a regular person. And so uh, imagine this. Here's a great example right here in verses 47 through 50. Jesus is sitting on the seashore teaching. He's sitting on the seashore. And so you can imagine as he's telling this parable of fish being caught in a net and dragged ashore and sorted out, uh, he's actually using the smells and the sights and the, the noises of what's going on around him. I imagine that there were probably a group of working fishermen just down the way doing exactly this thing. And so Jesus uses this everyday image, this very apparent image to describe what the kingdom is. And so we can see through this that Jesus was an accessible teacher. Isn't that great? He was accessible. He used regular language for regular people. That's how he taught. He wanted it to be accessible. And so because of that, Jesus always has something for everyone. And so here, this passage is no exception. Uh, there are the, some for those who are on the inside. There are some for those on the outside. Uh, and there's something for all kinds of people. And so in these three parables, there's something for everyone. I, I was joking with the music team beforehand that I almost named this sermon Good Fish, Bad Fish, Red Fish, Thrown into Hell Fish. But um, I think that kind of misses the point 
of what's going on here. Um, and so we went with comfort and conviction instead. There, there, is, there, are, there are parts of these parables that are going to be convicting for some of us. I hope that. I pray that. We're going to feel the need to change. We're going to feel the need to recognize something isn't quite right in our lives. For some of us, there's going to be comfort. We, we, some of us here are desperate for comfort of some kind. And there's that here as well. And I think probably for most of us, there's a little bit of both. Uh, and so this morning, as we again start in the middle of this series of parables in Matthew 13, uh, we're going to take a look and see what it has, what Christ has for us this morning. So first of all, uh, the, every parable in Matthew 13 is dealing with this concept, the kingdom of heaven. What is the kingdom of heaven? Jesus talked about the kingdom of heaven all throughout Matthew so far. And so um, you can go back and listen to some of the sermons that I preached on the Sermon on the Mount and others, and you'll hear more of this. But basically, at a very basic level, when Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven, it encompasses everything that he's teaching about who he is, what he's here to do. Jesus came to earth to inaugurate what? The kingdom of heaven. He talks about the kingdom of heaven in the present tense and the future tense. It's everything we believe about God that is right. It's how he interprets the law. It's everything about what Jesus teaches. It's the, it's the gospel. And so what we see here is the first two parables that he talks about, he uses some, some stories, again, everyday circumstances, familiar circumstances, to, uh, to uh, communicate something, and that is that the kingdom of heaven is highly valuable. Let's take a look first at the beginning of verse 44. He says this, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Let's just stop there. So let's understand what's happening here. What we have is we have a day laborer. He's just a regular old guy. This is not his field. He's, he's been hired out to, to do some work. He probably has calloused hands. He probably is a guy that owns a plow, has a house, has a family. And what he does is he takes day jobs plowing fields. And what happens? He, he stumbles across a buried treasure. It's on accident. He does not know it's there. So he's plowing along and all of a sudden, thunk, he runs into something. He checks it out. It's a, jar, it's a jar full of jewels and gold and who knows what else. An invaluable treasure. Uh, as soon as I read about buried treasure, I'm sure some of your minds went there, especially if you're in middle school or younger. Pirate's treasure, right? Why do pirates bury treasure? This is not a joke. It sounds like a joke. Why do they bury treasure? Because they steal. They steal it. They steal it and they don't want to put it in banks. It's a little different here than that. There were no banks. There were no safety deposit boxes back in ancient Israel. So what did people do with these collections of extremely valuable things? They'd bury it in the ground. So they did. And so you might be asking what this man, he, what he did, was it legal? Um, so something that happens with parables is we have a tendency to over-interpret them. And when you overinterpret parables, it's like overwhipping mashed potatoes. Anybody ever, ever had overwhipped mashed potatoes? They get gluey, kind of not quite right. Uh, our, our church fathers, so the early 100s, 200s, 300s, they would take these parables and they would squeeze every possible meaning out of them as possible. So every little thing in this parable, in every parable, had some meaning, some kind of allegorical relationship. And what I'm saying to you this morning is we, we ought not to do that. If we try to over-interpret our parables, we end up over-whipping the mashed potatoes. And so when you ask the question, is what he did legal or illegal, and trying to ascribe meaning to that, Jesus is not his point. Jesus often used unsavory characters 
to, to make a point. So what's the point of this? The kingdom of heaven has this unexplicable value. Inexplicable. It's extremely valuable. What he did with the treasure is less important. But what did he do? He purchased the field. Look at the end of verse 44. <clears throat> it's important to see that in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has. This day laborer goes and sells everything he has so that he might buy this field. Is he buying a field, folks? Is he buying a field? No, he's buying a treasure. He's buying a treasure. Something that is more valuable than anything he has in his possession. And so now, if you think about this day laborer's life, what does his life revolve around? Finding a job to plow the next day? No, it revolves around the treasure. Everything is about the treasure. <clears throat> and then we move on to the second parable here. It's a very similar situation. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who in finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. What's the difference here? Here we have a wealthy merchant. This guy is not a day laborer. He's a man that travels the world, and what is he doing? He's a, he, he deals in fine pearls. He finds valuable pearls, a very valuable gem at this time in, in, in the world that still are valuable. He buys them and sells them. He's he deals in fine goods. He knows fine goods. He knows fine pearls. He spends his life searching for them. And then what happens one day, just like the farmer in the field, something unexpected happens. He finds this pearl that he never thought was possible. He finds this pearl that was more valuable than anything he ever expected. And so what did he do? He sells all that he has in order to obtain this priceless object. So once again, although in different ways, the rich man abandons all that his life was. He no longer needs to be a merchant. He doesn't need to travel. He's found the pearl. His life revolves around this one pearl, not all the other ones. And, and so what's the point? I've already kind of hinted at it, but what's the point of these first two parables? The point is this. The value of the kingdom is subtle, it's exquisite, and it provides ultimate freedom. Do you hear that? The, 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 the value of the kingdom of heaven is subtle. Neither guy knew that he was going to find it that day. It's exquisite. When they found it, they knew they had no choice but to get rid of everything they had and obtain this one thing. And it's freeing. It's ultimate freedom. You see, these parables are actually a cost analysis. They're a cost analysis. And that's how we're going to treat them this morning, a cost analysis for ourselves. And so if we look at the parables, at face value, what, do, what does the kingdom cost us? What does the kingdom cost us? It seems to cost us everything. They sell every last thing to obtain the kingdom. Both the working man and the rich merchant, what do they do? They sell everything. Recall, if you will, from the Sermon on the Mount, what does Jesus say about the righteousness of disciples. He says this, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is in, in uh, opposition to the idea that we can have this measurable piety, this legalistic living, that if I just do this and I just attain this level of goodness, I'm all set. Rather, Jesus says, no, you can't have just this much righteousness and actually have real righteousness. No, we must spend our lives Seeking after the righteousness of Christ. Will we ever be perfect, church? You can answer that question. Absolutely not. 
But what is our life meant to be done? It's meant to be spent for Christ. Spent in pursuit of the kingdom. And that is the call and the cost of being a disciple. And so in, in one way, it cost us everything. And this is where the conviction of the cost analysis comes in. This is where the conviction comes in. The question could be, are you letting something stand in the way of your wholehearted allegiance to the kingdom? Are you trying to have your treasure and keep it too? You see? Did it say that the merchant sold half his pearls? No, he sold all of his pearls. And so what are the things that stand in our way? Certainly, I think monetary things. I think about the rich young ruler. Think about that story. This, this smart, wealthy young man came to Jesus and he said, what do I need to do to be saved? And Jesus went through several things and Jesus saw that this man had great piety. He was a great pious guy, but he had lots of money and Jesus knew that he loved it. And so what did he say? You lack one thing, sell everything that you have and follow me. And what's the result of that? The rich young man went away sad. He rejected it. I don't want that. I love my money too much. So certainly we could be that. That could be in our lives. And here's what I want to say to us as Western people, okay? As people who live in the United States of America. I think we overestimate the value of the things we have. I think we overestimate. I think we think they're worth more than they actually are worth. But that's another sermon for another day. We think we have to give up more than we actually do. But I think also it's cognitive things. Because really, was it money for the rich young ruler? No, it was really his love for money. And we can love lots of different things that keep us from the kingdom. I think about myself and others who ask all the what-if questions about their discipleship. Well, what if God wants me to fill in the blank? You can fill in the blank. What if he wants me to quit my job? What if he wants me to be a missionary? What if he wants me to, to give away my money? What if, what if, what if, what if? Some of you are asking those questions right now as I say from the scriptures, the kingdom costs everything. Several what if questions started going through your head. Well, what if God wants me to fill in the blank? I think at times too, we have this mentality towards our sin like it's a bag of chips. Well, just one more. The second potato reference. I'm not sure what's going on with that, but um, just one more. You know what? I'll stop, but just one more time back into that sin. That conviction, if you're feeling that, and all of us should feel it a little bit, if we're feeling that conviction, that is a conviction about cultural Christianity. That's what it's called. What is cultural Christianity? Cultural Christianity claims Christ, but is completely bored with him. Completely bored with him. I'm reading this book right now uh, called Deep Discipleship by J.T. English, and it's really been challenging to me. He says this in the first chapter. The message of cultural Christianity is that we should seek God so that he might provide for us. Do you see? The message of biblical Christianity is that God is our provision. Do you see the difference? Here's his second example. The message of cultural Christianity is that we should seek God in order to get things. The message of biblical Christianity is that we should seek God to get the highest thing, namely, Himself. And so, cultural Christianity doesn't enjoy sell everything they have. What does it do? It begrudgingly uh, gives some things, not joyously all things. What do we do about that, church? What do we do? We're all there some, some way. 
I think the pandemic in one ways has caused us to turn inwardly and we care about things we didn't used to care about. We're, we're stuck in things we didn't used to be stuck in. And so what do we do about it? First, I've been, uh, this comes from R.C. Sproul's Essentials of the Christian Faith. Is that what you guys are using for high school youth group? So this is the book that they're using to discuss things in high school youth group. But um, R.C. gives some really practical advice in this book. And the first thing he says is if you're stuck in this place, the first thing you do is have to ask, do you believe what the Bible says about Jesus is true? Do you believe it? That's the first thing. Do you believe what the Bible says about Jesus is true? So do you believe that you're a sinner dead in your sins? Not maimed, not injured, dead, incapacitated. Do you believe that Jesus came through his incarnation, his perfect life, his death on the cross, and his resurrection to undo that for you? Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is not only the Savior of your soul, but the Lord of your life? And, and the question that follows that, so first, do you believe that? The second question is, are you living like that's true? Are you living like that's true? He calls it examining the fruit of your faith. Where there is faith, there is fruit. Where there is fruit, there is faith. It's kind of a two-sided coin. The, the way I would ask that is, are you obeying the things you're reading? The things you, you read, are you obeying Christ? It's a, it's a good question. So let's run it this way. If, if you don't believe the things the Bible says is true, let's have that conversation. Talk to me. Let's talk about that. If you do, if you say, yes, I believe those things, but you're not living like it's true, what's the next step? The next step is to seek the Scriptures and pray to the Holy Spirit to reignite your heart and love for Jesus Christ. That's the next step after that. We must live, disciple, a life of obedience. We must. Obedience isn't what saves us. It's what comes out of our salvation. You see, through following Christ in obedience, we learn the value of following Christ. Christianity is not, a, faith is not an intellectual exercise. Think about this. Let's put it back in the parable. The man finds the treasure and he says, I know the treasure is there, but he does nothing about it. That's not faith. That's not going after the kingdom. That's not what that is. Faith is an experiential exercise. You go to Jesus. You fall on Jesus. You give yourself to Christ. Why? You have no other choice, no other hope. You flop on Him. Now this is not about doing better. It's not about doing more or doing enough. This starts in one place and we go back to our confession of faith that we read together today. Where does this begin? It begins and ends with the work of Christ. And so if you look at this passage from Philippians 2, what does it remind us of? What the kingdom cost Jesus. What did it cost Jesus? Look at this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, he dwelled for eternity as part of the Trinity. That rhymes on accident, and that hopefully will help you remember it. He was with the Trinity for eternity until what? He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. This word means to hold on to. He let go of that for a season. He let go of the riches and the glory and the worship in heaven for himself to do what? Empty himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. If that's not, not enough, look what he did. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a torturous, humiliating awful, bloody cross. That's what the kingdom cost Jesus Christ. 
He gave everything for us to have access to the kingdom. Now, some of you are ready to turn off the television. <laughs> One person already ran out of the sanctuary. Just kidding, that didn't happen. Listen, there's, there's, that's the conviction piece. There's also comfort here, and I want you to hear that. So yeah, there's some questions here. Am I giving it all? Do I see the worth of Christ? Do I see the worth of the kingdom? Do I, do I see myself, my holding on to this and begrudgingly having this? But here's some comfort. A few verses later in Philippians, listen to Paul explain his own discipleship. Listen to what he says. Philippians 3. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered loss of all things. And guess what? I count them as rubbish. It's a fancy word for garbage. In order that I may what? Gain Christ. Paul lost everything. And yet, as he has the kingdom, what does he have? Everything he could possibly ever want. Because it's Christ. So what is the comfort in the cost analysis? What's the comfort from these parables. Church, disciple, whatever investment you give, whatever investment you, you sacrifice, it is always worth it. Always. Never not worth it. There's no, no one can actually invest in GameStop in your discipleship and make it worth nothing. There's no market swing here. The kingdom is always worth everything. And no matter what you put in, you'll get out more. If you lose everything, is what Paul is saying, and still have Jesus, you have all you need and more. One author this week said, the kingdom more than compensates for what we sacrifice for it. More than compensates. For those of you who are in a flop sweat right now, listen, you're not the first one to worry about this. You're not the first one to worry about this. We go to Mark 10. This actually happens right after the rich young ruler walks away. Peter freaks out. Peter freaks out. He says this to Jesus. Peter began to say to him, see what we have left. We've left everything and followed you, Jesus. He's nervous. He's asking, what is he asking? Is it worth it? Jesus, is it worth it? If that guy's not with you, should we be with you? And here's what Jesus says. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions in the age to come. Eternal life. So Jesus, Peter asked, is it worth it? You know what Jesus' answer is? Absolutely, Peter. Absolutely, it's worth it. It's worth it. There's one more thing I think is worth mentioning here, and it has to do with the value of the kingdom, and it does something for us, church. This, I mentioned earlier that this, these parables show that the, the kingdom, obtaining the kingdom through faith gives us freedom. And, and I think that, that freedom, it, it, what it does is it supercharges our sanctification. That's a fun thing to say. It supercharges our sanctification. Here's what I mean. Dietrich Bonhoeffer from his book, Cost of Disciple, Ship says this. Happy are they who can live in the world without being of it, who by following Jesus Christ are so assured of their heavenly citizenship 
that they are truly free to live their lives in this world. What does he mean? What does he mean by that? When we, when we understand the value of the thing Christ has given us, we understand the value of the kingdom of heaven, you realize what that does? It frees us from needing anything from the world. We don't need anything from them. We have everything we need in Jesus Christ. You know what that does? It frees us to radically chase after Christ and the knowledge of the glory of God. We're free from those things. We don't need them. If we have Jesus, we have it all. And so church, what's the message? Whatever we give up, it's worth it. And so because it's worth it, we ought to give up lots of things. That's what we ought to do. There's lots of things we, we have yet to give up. It's always worth it. Now, that, this seems like these are only a call to insiders. I did say that there was something for everyone today, and this is where we transition to, to those who are on the outside. We get to talk about fish now. Thank goodness, right? So there, there is a message for outsiders here, and Jesus uses the parable of the fish in the nets to draw out that meaning. So before we get there, let me read this. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore, sat down and sorted good into containers, but threw away the bad. Some of you know, I grew up in Maine. Uh, my dad, uh, Doug, was born on a small island off the coast of Maine. And so uh, I had the, the pleasure and the privilege of growing up with a man who knew Down East Maine very well. So Down East Maine, if this is Maine, all right, this is fun. A little geography lesson. Down East Maine is the southeastern point of Maine. They call it Down East Maine. If you want to know why, go to the internet later. All right? But I remember we had all kinds of adventures. We had a small little skiff growing up, 14-foot skiff with a 15-horsepower motor. It wasn't big, but Dad knew the ocean well, and so we went out on the ocean with that thing. And I remember once we were cod fishing, and a whale spouted 10 feet off the bow. Those are the kinds of things I got to grow up experiencing. Um, and then Dad threw his fishing pole at it to try and catch it, which he didn't do successfully. But... Um, <clears throat> Another thing happened, I was, as I was reading this parable, it reminded me of the time we were boating around, and there on the shore were these big circles of tall pylons with nets. And I asked Dad what they were, and, and Dad always is a good uh, explainer of things, and he told me they were herring wares. And so as herring would swim up the coast in their season to, to migrate, they would get caught in these big circular things, and they wouldn't know how to get out. They're fish. And so then big boats would come and pump out the fish and take them to the sardine factories on the coast of Maine. And so as the fish would come down the conveyor belt, the people in the sardine factories would take the herring and process them into sardines. Everything else would fall into a bin at the end and become lobster bait. That's how it worked. This is the ancient version of that. They, they'd throw out a net, pull up all the fish they could get, and they'd sort them out, some for food, some for not. And so what we see here is a message <clears throat> for everybody. It's a message for everybody. The first thing I want you to notice from it is this, there's four words at the end of verse 47 that upon reading in English, you blow right over it, but really there's very significant meaning here. When Jesus says, fish of every kind, of course he wasn't speaking in English, the word he actually uses here is the word for all types of people, okay? So he's not using a word for fish, he's using a word for people. And so here is where we connect this parable to the first two. Think about this. Who were the kinds of people that, that were the stars of the first two parables? A working man who'd, who was paid to plow during the day. A wealthy merchant. All kinds of people. They both get riches. 
of the kingdom. And so the good news here, the connecting information here is that the good news of the kingdom is for all of every, people of every kind, all sorts of people, all types of people. And so there's two things we can learn from this. First of all, church, we don't have to sort it out. The good news is for us is verse 49, at the end of the age, the angels will come and sort it out. God's going to figure that out. What's our job, church, to share the gospel with every kind of person? That's our job. But the, the good news for outsiders is this. If you're an everyone, if you're listening via the internet or you're here and you're considered an everyone, the, the inexplicable value of the kingdom is for you. It's for you. The kingdom is for you. Now there's, again, we, the title of the sermon is Conviction and Comfort. There's a conviction piece here, so let's get that out of the way. What's the conviction piece? The conviction piece is that there are bad fish in the net. There's bad fish in the net. If you're versed in the Scriptures, then you would actually expect something different. You would expect all the fish to be bad. <laughs> what does it say in Romans 3? As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. So if we were to think about a net gathering all kinds of people, they would all have one thing in common, and that is they're bad fish. They're useless. They're sinful. They're, they're not righteous. All are evil is what the Scriptures teach. And so there's a hint of amazing grace in this parable that there's a good fish at all, let alone several. And so let's move from the bad news, which is always the good place to start when you want to understand the good, the, the, the good news. There's a comfort here that there's actually good fish. Because mankind is evil, we cannot save ourselves. God knows this and He made a way. What does Romans 6 say? For the wages of sin is death. But what? The free gift of God. Free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So what is the way? God has made a way for there to be good fish and bad fish, despite that we're all actually bad fish. What's the way? It says in Romans 5, God shows His love for us that while we were sinners, while we were still bad fish, Christ died for us. Somehow, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, turns bad fish into righteous fish. How is that possible? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, it says in Romans 10, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. With the heart, one believes and is justified, and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. Here's how it happens. By simply believing that Jesus did those things for you and giving your life to Him, seeing the value of that and giving yourself to it, by no work of your own, you become a good fish. You're reckoned as good by God. That's amazing news. That's comforting to those who need comfort. So this morning as I close, do you hear what Jesus is saying to all of us? First of all, church, we've been given sight to see this exquisite value of the kingdom. Everything we invest for it, every little thing we invest for it, every big thing we invest for it is worth it. That's what Jesus is saying. It's worth it. He's also saying to those who are on the outside, there is no need to be cast out. There's no need. There is no need to be cast out. So if you feel that conviction of the bad news, that is bad news. I don't be thrown out. The fiery pit. 
Grab tightly to the good news. And here's the good news. Revisiting our call to worship this morning. Listen to the good news. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. Do you hear what what the prerequisite is? To be thirsty. And he who has no money, come and buy and eat. What do you have to do to come and enjoy to realize you have nothing? By wine and milk without money and without price. Let me pray for us. Lord, your kingdom to us is free because you picked up the bill. It cost you everything. And so we give everything in our meager lives to gain what is of more value than we have. The kingdom. The kingdom's forever, Lord. It has no end. It's for eternity. And praise your name, it's for all kinds of people, even people like me. So this morning, Lord, I pray even in the insufficiency of my words. I pray that you would convict our hearts by the Holy Spirit in a way that is right and good by your Scripture. Comfort our hearts in a way that is good and right by Scripture. Call those to you whom you've chosen before time, whom you've called by name. May they hear it this morning and say, I'm hungry and thirsty, I have nothing to spend, and then realize that Jesus Christ provides for them without price. I pray as a church, Lord, thinking about our seminar yesterday and the future of this place, I pray two things. I pray that we would be a church that gives up everything and that knows the value of the thing that we have obtained through the blood of Jesus Christ. I pray that. That through our lives, we'd give up everything. I also pray, Lord, that we'd be a place that shares the gospel with all kinds of people. All kinds. We see them come to know the value of who you are, what you've done. You are the source, not just the giver of good things. You are the good thing. I pray those things, Lord. I pray those things in the name of Jesus. Amen.